Just like that, we are back. Bring it in, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Read Option. Flying solo here on a Wednesday afternoon, a rainy Wednesday afternoon here. Seems to be that kind of that kind of day, man. Just nice little warmish spring weather, but uh, rain nonetheless. And we got a great show lined up for you guys. We're gonna keep this one quick, sweet, to the point. And we're, we're honestly diving into a bunch of college sports-related topics. Obviously, we're going to do a very quick recap. Sweet 16, Elite 8. We are down to four in the NCAA tournament. And uh, we're also going to get into some other more football-related topics. Basically, pro days, because we are in the middle of pro day seasons. And I'm telling you, I got one hell of an argument to tell you why we should never, ever pay attention to pro days massive waste of time very excited to get into that and then we're going to finish off because in a more broad college sports news cycle that we've had today the ncaa and their lawyers have appeared in front of the supreme court for the first time in 40 years which is pretty remarkable and uh, there's a lot going on with the name image and likeness as well as some pushback regarding the current amateur model and what that kind of means, what it looks like, some of my personal opinions on it. This is something I've talked about many times. I've gotten in this conversation with friends and family and, you know, it's kind of right in my alley. I, I work and live with this stuff every day. I've been fortunate to get to work with some of the smartest minds in college sports. And, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to it. And, uh, we're going to, I'm going to give my takes as well as some of the stuff that I've heard kind of floated around some interesting little tidbits here as we try to navigate what the future of college sports might look like. And I'm telling you right now, it's kind of heading in one direction and, and I hope it doesn't go all the way, but I'll, you know, I'm not going to spoil it. So, uh, without further ado, let's hop into our first topic, the sweet 16. So we had a great weekend of college basketball. I don't know about you guys out there listening, but I am pretty college basketballed out. And yet we still have the final four, this new setup that the NCAA has you know, given to us for the, uh, for the NCAA men's tournament is funky. It's weird having our final four set on a Tuesday night around midnight. I had to be up early for work. I didn't see who won the game at the end of last night. I fell asleep with like three minutes left in the in the fourth well, fourth quarter, second half, because for some reason college basketball is the only basketball centric league that does halves instead of quarters. And even the women's side, they have four quarters. Why the hell did the men have two halves still? It's antiquated. It's dumb. We need to get rid of it. I fucking hate it. It always ends in foul calls and people shooting free throws, which most tight basketball games do. Anyway, regardless. It's been a lot of basketball over the last, you know, three weeks, honestly, but the last four days in particular, I'm going to give a quick recap. And fortunately for myself and for you guys of the eight sweet 16 games, six of them were complete dog shit. Gonzaga steamrolled Creighton USC absolutely beat the daylights out of USC Baylor. They were down at half. But let's be honest, I'm a Villanova fan myself. I didn't think Villanova had a shot in hell to come back 
in that game. Michigan blew the doors off of Florida State. Was very bummed. I was really excited to see how that game would turn out. Oregon State beat Loyola Chicago. Sorry, Sister Jean. Send them packing. And Houston finally put an end to the Buddy Bayheim story. But we did have two pretty epic games. Well, let's put it this way. We had one and a half epic games, right? The Oral Roberts and Arkansas matchup. Oral Roberts coming down to the wire were inches away from being the first 15 seed ever to make it past the Sweet 16. Unfortunately, it did not happen. Arkansas held on. You know what I loved about the end of that Arkansas game? And their final possession, they didn't dribble the air out of the ball and look for some step-back three, which happens so freaking much now in basketball. In the NBA, it's all they do. No one. It's, it's almost like they forget that there's a two-point shot available to them. They dribble the, the absolute air out of the ball. They look to try to cross somebody up so they can be Dame Lillard or Steph Curry or James Harden or any of these guys who had step-back threes instead of just putting your ass into the freaking paint, trying to get a foul call, or at least give yourself a decent look. Because, look, if you're tr- if you're going into the lane full head of steam, you're either going to get fouled, you're going to put up a layup, and then people are going to lose their mind because there wasn't a foul call. Or if the defense collapses on you, you kick it out for an open three instead of trying to force one and be the hero. And it, it absolutely drives me nuts. But Arkansas didn't do that. Uh, I'm forgetting the man's name. But he did a hell of a job working his way, got his way into the paint. His first look wasn't there, did an excellent job keeping his pivot foot down, found a nice little seven, eight foot fadeaway, mid-range shot, buckets, put him up two with only three seconds left in the game, and Arkansas holds on to win. The other really great game was UCLA and Alabama. Now, I was really high on Alabama, and we'll get to more on UCLA and how far they've come in a little bit. But Alabama, they kind of screwed the pooch on this one, guys. I mean, if you are an Alabama team that is top five in the country in three-point shooting and top three in the country in defensive efficiency, how do you lose to an 11-seeded UCLA, one of the first four teams? Usually had to beat Michigan State to even get into the tournament, which I guess technically you are part of the field of 68, but in the conventional sense, to even get to that first round, you have to play an extra game. And they were down. I mean, all credit to UCLA. This is not taking anything away from them. But for whatever reason, teams don't seem to be able to make free throws against them. Alabama looked pretty bad in that first half. They came out storming in the second half. Me and my man Ryan both hit the money line. It was plus 198. We were sitting there on FanDuel, on DraftKings, wherever you're using, boom, hammer that second half money line. Unfortunately, though, Alabama, UCLA, they get tied on what had to have been the shot of the tournament. Reese buried that three with only, I think it was like two and a half seconds left, three and a half seconds left to get the ball up the court. Buried that thing from about four feet behind the line as the buzzer goes. The crowd, whoever it was, you know, the limited crowd that was there goes nuts. Alabama goes nuts. And you're thinking, holy shit, Alabama's about to win this because all of the momentum switched. And this happens sometimes in overtime games in basketball. Tiger, I forget his goddamn, forget his last name. Everyone knows what I'm talking about on UCLA. Steps up right out the gates in overtime, buried a three, and that was all she wrote. That first three was the dagger, and I know that sounds crazy, but that very first three 
completely killed all the momentum that Alabama had in that Sweet 16 game. And then UCLA puts up 20 in overtime, ends up beating Alabama by 10. Uh, a very anticlimactic way to end what was a pretty great game and one of the best games of the tournament, at least in regulation. So then we had our Elite Eight, Michigan, UCLA, Oregon State, and Houston. Gonzaga took on USC, and Baylor takes on Arkansas. Well, Monday night, Baylor takes care of Arkansas. Baylor's a really good team. They're a really, really good team. And frankly, all year we've said it's been Baylor, Gonzaga, Michigan, we thought. But Michigan's not even at full health right now, so I'm not going to hold that against them too much because Michigan, or before we get there, Oregon State, Houston. Houston, despite missing 42 shots, still held on to win that game, which their effort on the offensive glass, their ability to work guys and, and play this really ugly and terrible style of basketball. I was wrong about Houston, and we're going to have Scotty on the pod coming up here in the next day to help preview the Final Four, and we're going to do spring training preview. I'm very excited for that. I was wrong. Hand up. I'm eating my crow, and Scotty's going to rip me for it. Well-deservedly. I'd say well-deservedly. So that was Monday. Houston punches their ticket. Baylor punches their ticket. That's half the final four. And then we have last night, Gonzaga and USC. The number one two-point scoring team in the country in in Gonzaga versus the number one two-point defensive team in the country in USC. And this happens every few years. It happened the year Villanova just ran through everybody in 2018. When you are clearly the number one team in the entire country, like head and shoulders the way that Gonzaga appears to be, we all talk ourselves into these storylines. I was guilty of it yesterday. I thought USC with Evan Mobley, I thought they were really going to challenge Gonzaga, at least their length, their athleticism. They looked scared out of the jump. They looked like they weren't even ready to play, and Gonzaga just absolutely whooped their ass. Gonzaga's good, man, and I, I still don't like Timmy. And the fact that that dude is going to win the player of the tournament really pisses me off. I hope Jalen Suggs gets it. I put this out on Twitter yesterday. And feel free to reach out and comment or or let me know your thoughts on this. But Timmy, I think it's Drew Timmy, he has to be the most unlikable, not just the most, the only unlikable player in Gonzaga history. Some people were coming after me saying Adam Morrison. I loved Adam Morrison, man. How do you not love that guy? He's goofy. He's weird. He's like a modern day Bill Walton. He's into conspiracy theories, that mustache and the hair and just way ahead of his time with the way he could shoot the ball. I loved Adam Morrison. I I just think this guy, the mustache, everything, he changes his freaking beard every two weeks during the regular season. It's a cry for attention, man. He's trying way too hard to be the cool guy at the tournament. Always like, like Crutwig was the cool guy. Everything about him was authentic. Nothing about this kid, Drew Timmy, comes across as authentic. Not even in the slightest. But Gonzaga rolled in there in the Final Four. We all knew that was going to happen. Now, the last game last night, Michigan versus UCLA. I thought UCLA wasn't even going to beat Michigan State. So the fact that they are here in the Final Four, the first four, uh, the first, sorry, the second first team, the second first four team, got it on that one, to make the final four 
them and VCU, the very first year that they had it, it is a remarkable feat. And Mick Cronin deserves so much credit. And what's even crazier is they're missing three of their best players, two of which are sitting out, one of which was hurt midseason. This is a miraculous run, and it's a shame that they're going to be going up against an absolute buzzsaw like Gonzaga. But Michigan, hell of a year. For Juwan Howard to have his first real year at Michigan, I am thoroughly impressed to be without livers and to get as far as they did is really impressive. But once again, the Big Ten without a champion. And I don't know when, but man, they they don't have elite pro players that go there. They don't even get elite recruits to go there. They play antiquated styles of basketball that the modern player does not want to play. If Juwan Howard can somehow change that, I hope he does. But I'm done with this. The Big Ten is a basketball conference. They're a college basketball conference, meaning the style of play is very reminiscent of how college basketball has been for a long time. But let's let's stop kidding ourselves when it comes to the Big Ten because they just they're not. They're not what everyone wants them to be. They don't get the top recruits. They don't have a whole lot of NBA players. When Frank Kaminsky and Mo Wagner are your are the best of the Big Ten, right? When we're talking about guys who go to the NBA and have good careers, and I might be missing somebody. I haven't gone through the full list, but those are the guys that are sticking out. And like I love Luca Garza and how good he was playing at uh, Iowa this year and over the last couple of years. His story's incredible. But the dude's not playing in the NBA. He'll get drafted. Somebody will. But unless he drops 30 pounds and gets really quick, really fast, maybe he can snag someone's Achilles. It's a little bit more quick twitch than him. I don't know. But the Big Ten needs an overhaul. They need to grow up. You know, Jalen Smith, even, who was drafted number 10 overall coming out of Maryland. I mean, he hasn't done anything for the Phoenix Suns this year. Anything. He was, a, he was a lottery pick. It's like, what are we talking about? When Duncan Robinson might be the best pro from your conference in the last 10 years, that's pretty telling. That's pretty telling about the kind of guys you're getting to come play in the Big Ten. So my advice, Big Ten, stick to football or change the way you do basketball because it might be interesting for college basketball diehards, but here's the thing. College basketball diehards are fading. People love the tournament. They always will, but no one watches the regular season. No one except for your team and your school. It's half the reason people fuck up brackets all the time because nobody knows who's any good. And look, maybe Ayodesumu comes out this year and becomes an awesome pro, and I hope that happens. I loved watching him at Illinois. But if you just look at the guys who've played there, I mean, Evan Turner, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. Evan Turner was a second overall pick. How'd that, how'd that work out for Philly fans? And all the other seven different conferences or seven other teams that he's played for in the NBA. I don't even think he's in the NBA right now. So when that is the bar you're setting, what does that say about you? I don't know. I don't know. Sorry, Big Ten basketball rant over. Final four is set. UCLA, them big boys up front. Nasty little guards in the backcourt. I love that team. They're going to get absolutely smoked by Gonzaga. Gonzaga, historic largest odds or largest spread for a Final Four game. They are a 14-point favorite. 
Don't be surprised if UCLA covers. But when they have to wait another whole week or at least four or five days before we even get to these final four games, I don't know. I think the magic and the the buzz might have worn off by then. Baylor-Houston, we'll see. We're going to get into this, Scotty and I, again later on this week. But for now, that's what we've seen here in college basketball. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. I'll be right back here to talk about the waste of time that are NFL Pro Days. NFL Pro Days, or maybe college Pro Days are a better way to put it, but Pro Days for the NFL Draft. They've been all over the news, in the middle of the NCAA tournament. Like, can we can we not talk about fucking Pro Days when the NCAA tournament's going on? It's the biggest waste of time. Even the combine for a lot of parts is a waste of time. In fact, the most valuable part of an NFL combine has nothing to do with what you do or see on the field. It has to do with the one-on-one meetings that coaches get to have in person with the players, getting a chance to talk to them, understand where they came from, what their families are like, what their life was like, what's important to them. That's the kind of stuff that matters at the NFL Combine. And pro days are even worse because coaches aren't allowed to talk to the players. They have their QB coaches there, the Jordan Palmers of the world, the George Whitfields of the world. Those are the guys, these QB gurus, who are leading these workouts. Those are the guys that we're talking about can actually interact with quarterbacks at their pro day. And it's not just quarterbacks, by the way. It's, it's for all players. Right. We're seeing all these 40 times, which, by the way, don't trust this shit. They're all unofficial. There is some of them aren't even lasered. They're like handheld times. They're unofficial times. Yes, it's nice to see. Oh, Kyle Pitts runs a 4 4 40 at his pro day at 6 6 and 230 pounds. Yeah, that's fucking insane. But we all knew he was fast. We all watched him run his pro. We all watched him run his 40s in his training videos that went viral on Twitter. This isn't new information. We all know how explosive he is. 40 times don't equate to in game speed. They just don't matter. Okay. None of these guys are wearing pads. And it's arguably the least football thing that we do in the football world because there will never come a time in the NFL when you have to just sit there with no pads on. Get ready and sprint 40 yards and then stop. That's not football. That's not how it works. No quarterback is ever going to sit there with no offensive lineman, no defensive pressure, no cornerbacks, and just one wide receiver running uncovered. That's not how football works. But we do it, and we obsess over it. We see all of these throws, oh my God, Zach Wilson scrolling out to his, rolling out to his left, turns back, bombs it deep. Yes, it's impressive, but these are the elite of the elite prospects. That's what they're supposed to do. What are we talking about here? Should we be surprised that Justin Fields can throw the ball 65 yards on the run? No. That's why he wants to try to be the first overall pick. Same with Trevor Lawrence. And it's incredible. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when it comes to their successes on the field or off the field. Let's look at 40 times. Okay? Let's go through the list of the top 10 40 times of all times. And I'm telling you right now, you're going to be shocked. Or maybe you won't. 
but you're not going to be impressed by these names. Zedrick Woods plays cornerback safety at Ole Miss. Didn't even make it past training camp, was cut. Ran a four, what was it? Ran a four, two, nine. Impressive. Fabian Washington, I actually remember him. He was great in Madden. Why? Because he was like a 99 speed. Came out of Nebraska, 2005. Played five years in the NFL. Didn't really do anything after that, okay? Five years in the NFL, ran a 4-2-8. J.J. Nelson, 2015, that name ringing any bells? Can you think of what J.J. Nelson looks like in an NFL uniform, what team he played for? Probably not. Some of you maybe. The Arizona Cardinals. He made it, hmm, three seasons in the NFL. 4-2-8-40. Jalen Myrick. Mirick, Myrick, cornerback from Minnesota, ran a 4 8 in 2017. Was waived before his second season. Jacoby Ford in 2010 ran a 4-2-8. These are some all-star caliber names, aren't we talking about, right? Yeah, didn't make it past his second season. Here's one that you will know. Champ Bailey ran a 4-2-8 back in 1999. Now, this was during the time when we aren't exactly sure how reliable or accurate some of this is. So he probably did run around a 428. He's also one of the greatest athletes the NFL's ever seen. He doesn't get enough appreciation for that. Shout out to our man Vito. But he is the only thing close to a good player on this list. And he is a Hall of Famer, one of the best to ever do it. Marquise Goodwin. He was supposed to be on the Eagles this year. He opted out. Went and ran at the Olympics. He's an unbelievable athlete. Ran a 427. Didn't do anything in the NFL. How about Dry Archer? Running back from Kent State. He had a hell of a career, didn't he? <clears throat> Never made it out of the second, or sorry, yeah, second year in the league. Saw some special teams and limited offensive snaps. Here's one that everyone cites, right? Chris Johnson. Chris Johnson in 2008 ran a 42440. Unbelievably fast, unbelievably quick. He ran for 2,000 yards in one season. But again, this is the top echelon. So right now we have two guys in the top 10 who did anything. Did anything. And yeah, one of them was a Hall of Famer. The other one, Chris Johnson, was a pretty good player. He hung around the league for a while. Made a couple Pro Bowls. Had that one unbelievable year with the Tennessee Titans to join the 2,000 yards club, club. I'm not taking anything away from him there. But he still only played in the NFL for less than six seasons. Okay, yes, he had an unbelievable one, not taking anything away from him. But the all-time number one fastest 40 time in NFL history was John Ross just a few years ago in 2017. a 4-2-2-40. Guys, this is not something you should take away and be like, oh, but Champ Bailey, oh, but Ch Chris Johnson. No. Those are outliers. That's not what this is telling us. So it's what this is telling us is that the overwhelming, look at the top 25 list. You can keep going out. Judging somebody because of what they run on a 40 time is just flat out dumb. It has nothing to do with the game itself. Yes, when you see guys with insane verticals, that's a metric that I can get behind. When Rondale Moore jumps 43 inches at his vertical, especially when the guy's only about 5'9", 5'10", that matters. 
because that can tell you that he can play bigger than his size. But even still, you have to take it with a grain of salt because what happens when you have pads on? And what does he look like going up to get balls at his, you know, like in on tape when you're watching him play the sport of football? Those are the numbers that matter. But what really pisses me off is the amount of effort that we put through. Sorry, put on quarterbacks. We put such an emphasis on how pro days and quarterbacks. I saw an article from Bleacher Report today saying how Mac Jones's terrible pro day is going to absolutely tank his career. It's like, get the fuck out of here. As if that has any effect. He did two pro days. His first pro day a couple weeks ago was to show how accurate with the football he is. His pro day today or yesterday was to see how hard he can throw the ball, how far he can throw the ball. It was about his arm strength. He didn't care if he was accurate or no. Because if you watch Mac Jones play the sport, he's as accurate as any quarterback we have. So you can miss me with this, Mac Jones had a terrible pro day. Oh my God, he's going to be a bust. He might, but it has nothing to do with his fucking pro day. So let's drop that conversation. All right, and look, just to prove my point here, I went through some of the best and worst pro days just to show you how ludicrous it is to put any sort of weight on it. Let's go through some of the best, right? These are some of the all-time highest-reviewed pro days for quarterbacks in NFL history. Blaine Gabbert, Super Bowl champ, Blaine Gabbert, just with the Buccaneers. Yeah, here's what Gil Brandt, one of the NFL experts, one of the guys who worked in front offices for a very, very long time, a very knowledgeable NFL mind. His workout was outstanding, much better than Cam Newton's at Auburn's on March 8th. They were the same class. Newton had six passes that were uncatchable at his workout. Personally, I don't think you could go wrong with either quarterback. So I give him credit there. Right. Because. All right. He said you couldn't go wrong with any with either quarterback. He at least had that. But when it came to Cam Newton, I wrote after Newton's workout that he should go number one to the Panthers. I'm not so sure now. That was his takeaway. That after Cam Newton's pro day, he should he may he wasn't sure that Cam Newton should be the first overall pick. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? Blaine Gabbert versus Cam Newton. This is what people were actually saying about it, okay? Let's go to another one. One of my personal favorites out of Washington, Jake Locker. He got tons of praise. Jim Trotter, Jim Trotter awesome NFL uh, reporter. One scout described Jake Locker's pro day as he ripped it, completed 38 of 40 passes. He absolutely Ripped it. Jake Locker. Retired at age 26. Jake Locker. Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles, my man, Blake Bortles. We all love Blake Bortles now, don't we? Anyone who listens to part of my take has a soft spot for Blake Bortles. People loved him at his pro day. Loved him. How's it worked out since? Let's go to Christian Hackenberg. A very impressive performance from multiple anonymous scouts. I get why they're anonymous now, because that's a horrific take. 
Christian Hackenberg, if you watched him play at Penn State, no one thought he was going to be a good quarterback. Nothing about Jake or Christian Hackenberg is impressive. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Here's one. George Whitfield on Johnny Football, Johnny Manziel, on a scale of 1 to 10, his performance was an 11. Any team that doesn't draft him is making a mistake. Johnny Football. Johnny Manziel, that's what was said about him. What was more important about Johnny Manziel? What he could do on the field or the kind of person he was and what you would learn in talking to him? That's why he fell. But ultimately, the Browns still drafted him anyway. And for a lot of teams, he was a red flag. A lot of teams didn't want to draft Johnny Football, and I get that. But people still, he was so good at his pro day. How do you not draft him? He was an 11 out of 10. It's very easy. You look at his size, you look at his mechanics, and you look at the person he is, and then you don't draft him. Maybe as a late-round flyer. Johnny Menzel should have been treated like Chad Kelly, who was another one who was raved about at his pro day. But of course, of course, no one is a better example when it comes to this conversation than Jamarcus Russell, 2007's number one overall pick to the then Oakland Raiders and then head coach Lane Kiffin. You should have heard and read the way that Lane Kiffin drooled over Jamarcus Russell. Mike Mayock, who is now, ironically enough, the current Raiders GM, said this. It is the best pro day I've ever seen. And how did that work out? It didn't. It didn't. Because it didn't matter. It meant nothing. But in the act of fairness, let's look at some quarterbacks who had bad pro days and see how they looked out. Doc Prescott, famous for a very bad pro day. Overthrew wide receivers, underthrew wide receivers, threw behind guys, threw way out in front of them, didn't put it in the, the right spot, had some shoddy mechanics. These are all things that were said about Dak Prescott's pro day. He went in the third round. Is that coincidence? I don't know. Because people loved him. People loved him when he was playing at Mississippi State. There were still questions. People, A lot of people were wrong about Dak Prescott. But his people put so much stock into his pro day, he ended up going in the third round. Amongst other reasons, I get it. But the more important part of this is that just because he had a bad pro day doesn't mean he's going to be a bad NFL quarterback. Cam Newton, I alluded to it there. Now, there was other character concerns and stuff going on with Cam Newton that I understand and I get why there was some hesitation. And luckily, the Panthers didn't listen. And the Panthers said, I don't give a shit if he overthrew six balls. But people were still having that conversation regardless. And all of a sudden, I'm not so sure now, became the mentality that a lot of people had when it came to Cam Newton. Guy who won an MVP. Guy who took the Panthers to only their second Super Bowl ever. Now, granted, they got worked in that Super Bowl. But that's not really here nor there. Marcus Mariota. Now, he's questionable, right? I get why not everybody loves 
Marcus Mariota. I still think Mariota is a decent quarterback. He's like I said before, he's, he's in that vanilla ice cream, you know, kind of area. He's okay. You're not mad about it. You don't love that you have just vanilla ice cream. You'd much rather have hot fudge on it and make a Sunday out of it. But if someone hands you vanilla ice cream, you're not going to be like, nah, I no, I don't like vanilla ice cream. It's gross. No one says that. And if you're talking to like, I, I, Mariota's in that class. He, he just is. And there's a reason why Gruden and them kind of want to hold on to him. People did not like his pro day. People thought he was unconfident, right? Um, but a lot of people still liked him. And there were still reasons for why he should have gone and was justified to go when he went. Russell Wilson had an okay pro day. I actually went back and watched it today. Not my favorite, not my worst, just okay. Teddy Bridgewater, average at best. Might be a little accurate. (laughs) But I think Teddy is still better than that because he had a notoriously bad pro day. And that list right there, that's five guys who are all talented, solid at minimum, and in other cases, MVP caliber quarterbacks. The fact that they're all people of color might be a different conversation. Don't think it's a coincidence either. But with all of that, with all this being said, now let's take a look to this year. Trevor Lawrence, insane 75-yard deep ball. Doesn't matter. Zach Wilson, dropping dimes all over the place, weird angles, weird foot placement. Doesn't matter. Mac Jones overthrows guys. Miss a bunch of receivers. Guess what? Doesn't matter. When Jamarcus Russell threw the ball 75 yards from his knees, that's more impressive than anything we've seen in the last four days. 75 yards from his knees. It didn't matter. And here's my favorite one. Dude. Justin Fields ran a 4-4-4-40. Man, NFL better watch out for him. Doesn't matter. Last quarterback to run in the 4-4s, Robert Griffin III. The point of all this is that these numbers at the end of the day doesn't matter. This shit does not matter. What does matter? What does the film tell you? When you are watching it, when you see what he does in a game against elevated competition, even against weak competition, what do you see? What are they doing? How's their footwork? Because look, you can have awesome footwork in an open gym, on an open field. But what does your footwork look like in a game when you got guys bearing down on you? Can, Can any of those guys still make that same throw they just pulled off of their pro day in an actual game? I don't know, but it's a hell of a lot easier for them to do it at their pro day. So I'm not putting any stock into it. Another thing to look for, and this is arguably the most important part. What team do they end up on? Guys, that's, that's what matters. That's what matters with all of these quarterbacks. Cause we know we've gone over this. First-round quarterbacks, you might as well flip a damn coin. Where you end up matters. The system, 
the franchise, the head coach, the physical location. That all matters more than a stupid goddamn pro day. And the last thing here that actually matters is luck. It's luck. That's why half of the first-round quarterbacks don't work. Sometimes it's, it's missing red flags like Jamarcus Russell and Johnny Menzel. Sometimes it's putting too much weight on a bad pro day in the case of guys like Dak Prescott. I mean, Dak Prescott's probably the best quarterback out of that draft class. Carson and Jared Goff. I mean, I still think Carson Wentz's ceiling is probably better. But we just haven't seen that in a long time. So I would put Dak ahead right now. None of this stuff matters. So let's stop wasting our time and our energy fucking talking about it. It's ridiculous. Cool. Zach Wilson... Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, they can throw the ball really far in an open field with nobody else on it playing catch. Really, really dope and cool, crazy athletic catch, but that's what this is. So for the love of God, can we do the things that actually matter to evaluate quarterbacks and stop drooling over clickbait bullshit? Because at the end of the day, half of these guys are going to suck and the other half are going to be good. And it's not going to be because of how well they performed at their pro day. All right. Last thing I want to get in here today. The NCAA and their lawyers appeared in front of the Supreme Court. First time in four decades. Four decades. It's pretty remarkable if you really think about it, right? I mean, how did we get to this point? Or maybe the better question is, why did it take so long? To get this point, but look, basically the Supreme Court justices of the United States had the opportunity to question whether amateurism is an essential part of the NCAA's business model. Now, this is for name, image, and likeness, All right? This isn't the NCAA coming out to pay players. And I want to kind of treat this into two different things. Number one, what is going on right now? And why the NCAA is continuing to do what the NCAA does best, which is put their foot in their mouth. Versus my thoughts on name, image, and likeness and amateurism as a whole when it comes to college sports. So the first part of this, this isn't new, okay? The NCAA has preached and pranced this idea of amateurism around, this traditional belief that this antiquated style and ideology that amateurism is important, in order for the NCAA to run effectively. It sounds kind of crazy when you put it that way, right? Like it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It sounds like a bunch of BS because why? Why can't a player make a little bit of side money on stuff? How is that going to affect the revenue that gets brought in? Now, the NCAA is continuing to just suck over and over and over again. And on top of it, they have done nothing but look bad throughout this entire day. If you followed the court proceedings and the lines of questioning, even the most extreme conservatives on the Supreme Court, people like Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Comey Barrett, who are very controversial figures in our political system. Well, I shouldn't say political, our judicial system. 
unfortunately it became political, neither here nor there. Even the most extreme people there were just roasting the NCAA. And I was, I was here for it. I loved it. Because the NCAA has been getting away with this bullshit for so long under this idea that amateurism is somehow integral to the of how the NCAA works. This is the actual, well, one of the actual NCAA arguments. This is like one of the actual things that they have put out into court. Consumers love watching unpaid people play sports. What? What are you talking about? For those who do, like how many of you are sitting there at home and you're watching a college football game go, man, thank God these guys don't get paid. Because if they did, no shot in hell I'm watching. No way. Come on. That's ridiculous. Especially when we know how many of these guys are getting paper bags under the door. We all know that. That's how college football and basketball have worked for decades. This isn't new. Jalen Rose has said it a hundred times. It was a hundred grand and a new Mercedes. That's what you got when you went to Michigan. Well, not Michigan, but when you went to a school specifically. I've heard stories from former athletes, things I can't share on here, but I've heard stories. I know this shit happens. It's happening now. Tennessee just found a way to fire Jeremy Pruitt because he was literally giving them out in McDonald's bags. So don't feed me this shit. Don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining. All right? That is not a reason why people don't, or that's not a reason why people go to the NCAA. It's just not. So this whole idea that these guys can't get anything is absurd. I've used this argument a bunch of times, right? If you are a violinist in an orchestra and you're on scholarship to go to a school to play the violin at that school and you want to start up a YouTube channel and you get millions of followers and you have ads and ad revenue and you get endorsement deals, you're allowed to get that money. Does that mean that people are going to stop showing up to the opera? Does that mean people are going to stop showing up to see the orchestra perform? No, of course not. Because that's ludicrous in an asinine way of thinking. And look, the NCAA has a bunch of other bullshit arguments. And it has already been denied multiple times. On the district court ruling, the ruling was, in this case, Austin versus the NCAA in 2020, that limits NCAA member schools mutually agree to place on what each school can provide to its athletes in compensation are illegal basically telling them that you can't fucking do this. It's ridiculous. And it's not integral to the way the NCAA is run. Bomani Jones from ESPN had an awesome way to summarize this whole thing. The Supreme Court hearing is a reminder that the NCAA's arguments sound really crazy to people who don't really follow sports like that. That's exactly how it is. That's exactly what it is. Because all of these hoity-toity, Harvard-educated lawyers who are on the Supreme Court, you know what they're not doing? They're not cracking a beer and watching Alabama play Texas A&M. Or even worse, watching 
Ole Miss play Arkansas. Right? That's just not what they're doing. They got better things going on. They're not locked into this the way that people who listen to this pod, myself, and and sports fans across the whole country. Like that's we watch sports, we pay attention to that shit. They don't. They got more important shit to worry about. So then when it's explained to them, the rationale behind it and their response is basically, and this was Kavanaugh said, literally almost used the word crazy. It, it's mind-blowing to me that the NCAA is still trying to pass off this shit. It really is. Now, to my personal opinions when it comes to name, image, and likeness and the amateurism within college sports, it's pretty simple to me. Name, image, and likeness. It solves your problems. Because realistically, if you try to take the money that schools make from their revenue-generating sports, which are men's football, obviously football, men's basketball, and women's basketball, primarily those are the only three sports. And this is like going across the country, and it's not the case everywhere, but the only three sports where you will make money. The majority of NCAA programs operate in the red. They get that money from things like March Madness. They get certain money from TV deals, but that's only the big dogs, right? Your your SEC schools, your Big Ten schools, those guys, they get big TV contracts. So they can build all this new, all these new training facilities, which also get funded by private donors in addition to TV contracts. Most schools are not as are not so fortunate to be able to have that kind of a luxury to do this. So even if you took a school like Alabama, right? Alabama, there was a case study I read when I was in college. It was the year after they won one of the national titles. It might have been 2013 or 2012. If they tried to pay all of the student athletes, and because of Title IX, you would have to pay them equally, the average athlete would get about $4,000 a semester. Right, you're getting four thousand dollars. At that point, the the whole idea of a scholarship might be up in the year, but getting eight thousand dollars. Okay, great, that's awesome. Where does the money then come from to support all of your other programs? Essentially, the NCAA would fold the way that we know it. We've already seen after one year of COVID, lots of schools across the entire country have had to cut athletic programs left and right cut coaches, cut budgets, and literally cut entire programs. Because realistically, there isn't a good way to pay college athletes. Even if you took that billion dollars, take the billion dollars that you make from the NCAA tournament. And now let's try to pay the players with that. You would ruin the idea of college athletics. And look, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be able to get paid for it. And that's where name, image, and likeness comes in, and we'll get there in a second. But by having the NCAA directly pay the players, it would completely bankrupt what is the NCAA. And at the same time in our society, well, at least in the sports world, like scholarships matter still. You may play a non-revenue generating sport, but that doesn't mean that you're not on scholarship. Getting to go on scholarship is a big deal. Speaking with someone who is six figures in debt because of student loans, I can tell you firsthand how big of a deal it is. And yet, 
on one half of our country and one thought process, banks and schools and tuition, money keeps going up. We value a scholarship as much as we've ever valued it before in the eyes of tuition and the eyes of the schools and the eyes of the banks. But the second you put the context of sports around it, it's as if scholarships don't mean shit. And that's ridiculous. Not only that, I live next door to four girls who played sports at James Madison. And I love my school and I'm thankful for my opportunity there. But I know for a fact that they got preferential treatment in class. I was the same major as two of them. I know for a fact that they got better grades than they deserved on certain things because they were athletes. And as heartbreaking and hard as that is to hear, and it's hard for me to even say, it's the truth. So in addition to getting facilities, getting all this stuff, and yes, you are committing what's basically uh, more than a part-time job, but an almost full-time job being a student athlete while also still trying to be a student, you still get a lot of perks. You get networking opportunities, right? If you are an offensive lineman at Alabama and you played on a national championship team, even if you're a backup, you're getting hired out of, out of college immediately. If you go to Penn State, Penn State people want to hire just other random Penn State people. But if you played Penn State football, you're going to have people recruiting you to come work for them because that's how it works. And so not only do you get the scholarship, which is massive, you also get the opportunity to get a good job right out of college simply because you were a student athlete at the school that you went. We can't undervalue that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't make changes like name, image, and likeness to allow the top 1% to get paid. But realistically, there is not a viable way as of now to do this without bankrupting what is the foundation of college sports, which means the track and field athletes at Tulane. If that program gets cut, if their athletics get cut, that could be two, 300 people that maybe otherwise wouldn't be able to go to school. And now there's no athletics program and they're not good enough to get to a, a, a top level power five school. So now what they just, they're stuck not being able to go to college. And I get it. Maybe that's would only be a few hundred people at one school or 50 people at one school. But remember we're talking about like 500 division one programs here. We're talking about a lot of schools. In D2 and D3, they can't give out scholarships, right? They can help. They can do certain things. But when we're talking about full rides, it has to be D1, and I'm acutely aware of that. But our society has devalued the idea of a scholarship in the sports context while simultaneously having that same value skyrocket when it comes to our bank systems and our tuition bills from the actual schools themselves. We can't have that much of a contradiction. They can't be that far apart. They just can't. Now, where does name, image, and likeness fall in on all of this? Well, name, image, and likeness would allow the Zions, the Trevor Lawrences, the Justin Fields, the people with massive social media followings, the people who could go do car dealerships down the road. I did a, my own study where I went to seven different businesses around Harrisonburg, Virginia, and asked, would they pay if they could, to have a student athlete be in a commercial. The car dealership said yes, absolutely, and that they would give them a car. 
while they were on campus. That's a car dealership in Harrisonburg, Virginia at James Madison, an FCS school. If you don't think that's the same way at most Division I schools around the country, you're out of your mind. And yes, again, we're talking about the 1% of athletes. But that's this conversation only comes up when it's Zion and Trevor Lawrence. It doesn't come up when we're talking about the track and field player at Tulane. Those guys get to college and they get the full ride ed- education, and that's a massive leg up. And it's unfair that Trevor Lawrence can't make money off of having over a million Twitter followers and also being Trevor Lawrence and signing a, a Nike deal, just like it is for Zion Williamson. When Zion Williamson was in college and he had 2 million followers on Instagram, in addition to literally blowing out sneakers in which every shoe company in America would have thrown themselves to now be the new official sponsor of Zion Williamson and his feet. But they couldn't because of this antiquated style of thinking. So I understand I'm not as super progressive on this as I am in a lot of other ways, but that's because I appreciate and understand the value of your average student athlete because their lives would be drastically changed if the NCAA tried to pay players, which is ridiculous. It wouldn't happen. And the minimal amount of money that these players would get if that happened would not be worth cutting thousands of programs across the country, taking away scholarships from thousands of kids. That to me is not worth it. And if somebody else can find a a middle ground to my middle ground, I'm all ears. I genuinely am. There's ways that we can set up things like give them healthcare for the next 15 years and even beyond. Right now, the healthcare that's given by schools and by the NCAA to former athletes only extends about three years. Most of the players who dealt with injuries aren't going to feel the problems from it until after that point, not to mention we can all do that and stay on our parents' health care. And maybe your parents don't have health I don't know. I'm not trying to assume. But the point still stands. That's not really anything special. So there are absolutely things we can change to help ensure the long-term and short-term safety of our student-athletes. If you wanted to make it a lump sum that they get at the end by the time they graduate, I'm up for that. You know, You're able to put their stipends together and and all of a sudden by the time you graduate boom here's here's fifteen thousand dollars it's probably a little high but you gotta understand the method there and ultimately the amateur model is a bad thing for the top earning athletes the people who are waiting to be able to turn pro and soon enough and when it comes to basketball at least we may not even have that problem anymore if players are eventually allowed to go straight from high school again but we won't know We won't know. And hopefully this NCAA Supreme Court situation comes back and tells us that name, image, and likeness is perfectly fine. It is, in fact, the responsible thing to do. And to not allow that would be illegal, which is more or less what the ruling here is. And there is no appeal past the Supreme Court. So assuming the Supreme Court comes back the way that people feel and the way that the courts have continually come back with, then I think we're going to be able to see name, image, and likeness come to play. And we should. We should. It's the middle ground that keeps 
it's it's the concept, the philosophical concept of altruism. The thing that does the most amount of good for the most amount of people. And that doesn't always work, but I think it works here. That's all I got for you. Fun podcast today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Rate, like, review, subscribe. Please share. Share it to somebody. Pick one sports fan in your life. I'm going to tell you this repeatedly. Pick one. One person who you know loves sports and say, hey, check this guy out. Sometimes he says some funny shit, and other times, well, other times he just makes fire takes and awesome points. But uh, we'll be back with you later on this week. Very excited for our next pod. I'm going to talk some spring training as well as previewing the final four. So until then, take it easy, everybody.